we've also heard in Scripture. Why am I saying all of this? Salvation belongs to the Lord. There's no doubt about that. There's no question about that. But the onus of responding in faith and belief and responding in repentance is clearly in Scripture on us, the sinner. Now, how do those things balance? Well, I don't know, but they're both true. I can tell you that for sure. I didn't save myself. Jesus saved me. I didn't seek him. He sought me. I didn't draw myself to the Lord. He drew me. I didn't choose me, and I didn't choose him. He chose me. That I know is true from Scripture. But I also know that 99 times in the book of John, the sinner is challenged to believe. I know that throughout the New Testament, Paul, Peter, John, James, all of the epistles speak of repent and believe, turn and believe. That's what we see, the responsibility of the believer. This is an intersection that goes above my head, but they are dual truths in Scripture. And you must repent and believe. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, John 3, 18. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Notice, because he has not believed. The sinner has not believed in the only name, the Son of God. Verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son will not see life. Does not obey, does not follow his commandments, does not believe. But the wrath of God remains on him. While it's there for you, you must believe. Mark 16, 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. It's very clear. And I think that it's, it's a scary thought. It's a scary thought to consider that, that when, we, when we hear the gospel and we're convicted and the Holy Spirit's moving in us and he's drawing us to him and the salvation is working in our lives, that we see it, we're, it's right there. There's a dangerous moment in time that Steve Lawson has a incredible quote that is scary, but it's, a, it, it, it's something that puts us in our place. I want you to read this with me as I, I read it out loud. Unbelief towards Jesus Christ is a deadly sin. Unbelief tramples underfoot the precious blood of Jesus Christ and considers it to be unclean. Unbelief insults the Holy Spirit of God who comes to bring conviction of sin. Unbelief calls God a liar and acts as though God's word is not true. Unbelief slams the door in the face of the Son of God. Unbelief towards Jesus is a flagrant act of cosmic treason by the creature against the Creator. Heavy stuff, right? And unbelief is the only sin that will never be forgiven. Adultery can be forgiven. Fornication and immorality can be forgiven. Suicide can be forgiven. Greed and ego can be forgiven. Slander and malice can be forgiven. The sin of unbelief is so heinous that, quite frankly, hell cannot be hot enough for the one who dies in unbelief, who has utterly rejected Jesus Christ. It is no small thing to live in a state of unbelief towards the only Son of God. Do you look at Jesus that way? When you hear the gospel, when you understand, when I survey the wondrous cross, does it make you shake? Does it make you nervous to understand that, do I truly believe in him? Is my, is my heart wholly, wholly dedicated to him? Has he truly saved me? If I surrendered, have I come to the end of myself? Now keep in mind, I... I'll reiterate, Jesus saves, you don't. He, he seeks you, and he calls you, and yet he tells you to repent and believe. He challenges you, and unbelief towards the almighty, sovereign, perfect, righteous, and clean, and just God 
is as we just heard from Lawson, this is cosmic treason, eternal treason. It's a big deal. So, had to cover 37 again, one more time. Today is the day of salvation. Today, right here, right now, while you can, while he may be found. But let's move on to verse 38. He gives us a qualifier for this. They didn't believe, and we covered why people don't believe last week. These people, their time had come and gone, and verse 38 tells us why. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. So that the word spoken by the prophet, by God himself through the prophet Isaiah, would be fulfilled. Now, what is this word? What is the word spoken? What does that mean? Well, it's prophecy that we see very clearly here. I'm going to read it now, and I'll read it later, that this prophecy has to do with not, them not being able to believe anymore. Look at it real quick, and we'll come back to it later. The word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And it says in verse 39, they could not believe. Did you check that? They could not anymore. It wasn't in their hands. So going back to the idea of salvation and how it belongs to the Lord and not you. Must, must you repent and believe? Yes. But you don't get to do that whenever you want. You do that when the Lord draws you. You do that when the Holy Spirit convicts you. You do that when he comes into you, when he does the supernatural work. Again, those lines cross above my head, but that is an absolute fact. It is also an absolute fact that there are times where you cannot believe. You can't, because it's a supernatural act, and you're not supernatural. It's as simple as that. Now you think, is this, is this somehow just unique to this situation? It is not. I want to give you a couple examples of where we see this in the Old Testament. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, we've been studying Solomon and his writings. We know that Solomon veered away from the Lord, followed after false gods, understood the folly of his ways, but there was discipline that would come. And his son learned from him, unfortunately, and didn't listen to the righteous, good, wise counsel of the old men, but listened to his friends and decided to be hard on the people. And notice what happens here. It was his own evil. It was his own evil desire, Rehoboam's. It was his own sin that made these bad decisions. But notice what God does. He gave him his chance. But notice it says, So the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word. God used Rehoboam's sin, his arrogance, his pride, his selfishness that he was going to do naturally. He'd given him a chance to make a good decision, but this was brought about by the Lord to fulfill his, wor- his word, his will. This is something that God uses, and he still does this. And he fulfilled what he had been predicted to Ahijah, who was a prophet, to Jeroboam, who then took ten of the tribes of Israel after this. But we also see this earlier in Hophni and Phinehas' life. These two wicked sons of Samuel, or or Eli rather, uh, and, and these two had had chance after chance. As a matter of fact, Eli had a chance. God had spoken to him that he should discipline his sons. He should warn them to fear the Lord. And he failed to do that as a father. We heard a little bit about that in in hour number one today, too. What an important role we have as parents. He failed to do it. Gave him chance after chance after chance, and then look. 
It says, no, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? And I want you to note, he didn't discipline his sons, and he kept them in a position of authority at the temple, and they did terrible things. But they wouldn't listen to the voice of their father. Notice, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now their time had come, and it had gone. The window had shut. The door was closed. They no longer had a chance, and God gave them over to do what they ought not do, much like we heard in Romans 1 last week. This is what we see. God's done this before. And we see this more famously than any other example with Pharaoh. And I don't want to spend too much time on it. I've got the text up here. Over and over we see from the jump, God said, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. When it was all over, after the 10th plague, and as they're going to the, to, to the Red Sea and for the crossing, I want you to notice it says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Now why I bring this up, and we're not going to look at the whole text, is I want you to notice why God does these things. It may seem to you as we read this, and this is hard, this is hard, I know it's hard, that this is some sort of a malicious and mean God. No, no, this is for his glory. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. I will get glory over man today. I will get glory over Satan. I will get glory over this world. God is doing all that he does for his glory. Never forget that. That's an important thing to understand, and we see him double down on that, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts and his chariots. Now, what I haven't put up on this screen, this is text showing that God is hardening his heart. If you read the text carefully, God knew he would do this because he is foreknowing, understanding, providential, omniscient. He understands everything he's going to do because he wrote it, and he's God, and he's in control. But if we look at chapter 9 of Exodus, and we look at, at that, and we kind of go through the plagues, we see a transition happening. In the first five plagues, Pharaoh's hardening his own heart. And he's doing what he wants to do. And God had given him those chances and then shut him off. And by the time we get to the sixth plague of boils, God hardens it for him and he continues to do that. So that his will will be done and his glory will be over everyone else. And that is what we see. This is what God will do and he will continue to do it. So I say this, and although this is a hard teaching and this is difficult to hear, this is exactly what this text is talking to us about. This was prophesied, this was written by Christ, written through Isaiah, and it's important to know this. So as we go this, this was predicted, this was prophesied. So what do we see again, coming back to the text? Two things that we've read now three times. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's one quote from Isaiah. Then we say, again, therefore, they could not believe. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. Now, why does this matter? What difference does it make where this comes from? Well, let me show you where it's coming from. It's coming from Isaiah 53, and it's coming from Isaiah 6. There's multiple reasons why this is important. But one that I came across as I was studying this week, and to be honest with you, I'd never really paid attention to before. I think I'd heard it. But I never really considered it, and so I dug into this a little bit, and I'm going to try to help us understand why this is important for us today. But this matters because there is some false teaching going on at the highest levels in our Christian colleges. And I I heard it said, and I told the fellow elders this morning, I heard it said, and I can't remember who said it. (laughs) I heard too many things this week, and I didn't have a chance while I'm driving a truck to write it down. Somebody said this, it takes about 15 years 
for false teaching in a seminary or a Christian college to begin to permeate into the local churches. Fifteen years isn't long, by the way. Fifteen years is uh, a flash. For many of us, we we remember 15 years ago like it was yesterday. It it doesn't take long. Fifteen years for false teaching, bad theology, bad doctrine to come into a local church. And here's one of them. Here's one of the false teachings. There are many in the academic world who call themselves Christians that believe Isaiah didn't write all of Isaiah. As a matter of fact, there are two, maybe three Isaiahs, and here's what they call them. The Proto-Isaiah, the Deutero-Isaiah, and the Trito-Isaiah. And if that sounds stupid to you, it is stupid, but that's what they call them. And here's what they believe. The Proto-Isaiah is the original Isaiah, and he wrote chapters 1 through 39. The Deutero-Isaiah, he is the second Isaiah, and he wasn't really named Isaiah. He was just continuing the book of Isaiah. He is an unknown name, and he wrote chapters 44 through 54. Oops. And then the Trito-Isaiah, which some don't buy in. They think that there's only two. He wrote 55 through 66. Why does this make a difference? Here's why it makes a difference. The reason why the academics are doing this is because they want to strip from our God his supernatural eternal power. They want to strip from him the divine. They want to strip from you, the believer, that our God is still at work, that he's doing what he does, and he does what other people can't do. They are trying to take away the predictive authority of God's word, the prophetic authority of God's word. Why does that matter? Well, Jesus and his life, his life, his death, and his resurrection are all predicted in the Old Testament. His return for us is predicted in the Old Testament. His establishment of a kingdom is predicted in the Old Testament. You begin to strip away these things, then where's your hope? And if you begin to strip away these things, you're neutering a God that has no business being that way. He is in full authority and full power, and he is in full control. And he knows what he's talking about. So what does this have to do with these two things? Well, I want you to note something here. 1 through 39 and 55 through 66. What do we see John doing? Taking one from 53 and one from 6 and establishing them both with Isaiah. And you think, oh, that's pretty cool. Well, what about that other category? Well, Jesus does the same thing by quoting in in Matthew chapter 4 when he walks into the tabernacle and quotes Isaiah chapter 61 and says, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus knew what kind of doubt and misunderstanding and false teaching would come in 2023. He knew it. See, he's God. And he knew that you would need to know that, no, 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 God's word is true. Why do they do these things? Because there's some crazy prophecies in Isaiah that have to do with men yielding and kneeling to the Almighty God. There are some incredible prophecies about Cyrus 150 years before he was born, and the academics say it's impossible that someone could name who the king would be and what he would do in Isaiah chapter 44 and chapter 45. That's impossible, I agree, but it isn't for my God. It's not impossible for that same God in Isaiah 44 and 45 to predict that and also predict the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. You strip away 44 and 45, you strip away Isaiah 53, which my entire salvation is held to, and so is yours. Does it matter that you know these things? It does, because you're going to hear people talking about, how well, that's not exactly how it is. That really isn't a prediction. Those prophecies aren't really true. They aren't really going to happen. And then they begin to strip away everything that we know to be true. This matters. 
And as we look at this, we have some proof that goes beyond this. There's a significant discovery that happened in 1948. And I want to show you something, and I I think it's important to understand this. I don't want to spend a ton of time on this. I don't want this to become a history lesson. But you need to know these things because we have got to be Bereans. And we've got to be those who can defend the faith. And we've got to know what we're talking about. So here's what we see in 1947. Extremely important thing. I think many of you know this. That the scrolls, these, these Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered... On random chance, I don't think it was random chance. By the way, Israel was reestablished in 1948. Wow, how about that? God's timing. They validate the accuracy of the Old Testament that we use today. They were preserved by a group of Jewish scholars. They were named the Essenes. And these scrolls were written and preserved 250 years before Christ's death. Now what's incredible, or Christ's life and death, what's incredible about this is what was found in there. Many portions of Daniel, but specifically the entire book of, of Isaiah. The whole thing. Once again, is that an accident? There are pieces and fragments, 15,000 plus of other books, but the whole thing, all of it to establish. And by the way, you'll notice in here, in this, there are no breaks in the book of Isaiah in that copy, 250 years before Christ. It is one long book attributed to one man. The entire thing that includes everything we know about our Messiah these incredible, haunting passages for the non-believer, they are validated by the Dead Sea Scrolls. Commentary on this, a book about this. This is a young man who wrote this book, this, this commentary on this particular uh, finding. He said, The scroll of Isaiah found at Qumran indicated that the Essenes community had no division in the book. In fact, the column in question containing the text 38.3-42 through 42, with no indication of a break between 39.8 and 41. While admittedly an argument from silence, the fact that one manuscript has been found separating the book is not one, excuse me, has been found separating the book is noteworthy. In light of such powerful evidence, those of faith, believer, who study the book objectively must conclude that the entire book was written by the prophet whose name it bears. Now, why does this matter? Well, we've been talking about for the last few weeks the full counsel of God, have we not? I have brought that up for two weeks in a row, and I'm bringing it up again. The full counsel of God matters. We can handpick what we like. We can begin to use what we would call liberal understanding of Scripture for our benefit if we don't like what we see. If it's maybe too convicting, if it, if it maybe challenges our own personal status quo, no, the full counsel of God. This is all God-breathed. This is all useful. This is all divine. And as Peter said about Paul's writing, some of it's hard, some of it's difficult, but it's all eternal, and it never will fade away. Heaven and earth will, but his word will not. And it's important for you, believer, as you study it personally, and we look at this word, and as you heard in hour number one, how important it is to pursue wisdom, to be linked, and to be fed. And I love that illustration, by the way, if you were in hour number one, of the grease idea. And if you're like, what are you talking about? Well, go back and listen to it. It was excellent. I'd never heard that before. God pushing in the right, the righteous, the pure of his word and pushing out the junk, the old. And that's so important. The full counsel of God. You trust it. You believe it. Every time a critic comes around and tries to somehow disseminate, destroy, separate God's word, it's inevitable. There's proof that comes out. No, 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 no. It was, it was God's all along. It's consistent all along. This makes a difference. Okay, so let's get back to the text. This matters to us. 
this was part of God's plan, and you think, how is this good for us? You say, good for us? These people are getting hardened, and they can't believe. Well, there's more to this story. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 11. Let's see what this really means. What's this about? Romans chapter 11. And this is a deep study. This is, I've, I've heard people say this is the deep end of the pool. But you guys can swim. Romans chapter 11. Here we have Paul coming off of Romans 10, famously where he is telling us, listen, we have to, we have, to have people sent out to preach the gospel. How are they going to believe if they haven't heard the gospel? The gospel is what saves. Jesus is what saves. How can they respond in belief? How can they respond in repentance and faith? If they haven't heard, go spread the gospel to the whole world. Salvation to all. That section from, from verse 8 all the way through verse 21. But then he picks it up at verse 11. Chapter 11, verse 1, rather. I ask then, so you should be there by now, I ask then, has God rejected his people? Has he, he has rejected his people? I'll bring this up on the screen. Has he rejected Israel? By no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Do you know that the scripture says of Elijah how he appeals to God against Israel? You see, this is a really important understanding. He hasn't rejected his people. He hasn't done this. As we continue on in the text, there's much more to this than just God rejecting his people. Uh, That This somehow is a a permanent forever thing. We're going to unpack this. But how does this benefit us? Let's move along here. Verse 5, so to at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. There are Jewish men and women of the time of Christ and of the time of Paul who would believe in Christ. It's not all of them. But if it's by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, the the Gentile elect. But the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day, from the time of when Paul is writing this. And he's quoting Isaiah 29 here. And David said, and this is quoting Psalm 69, Let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So there is a partial hardening. What Jesus is speaking of in John chapter 12, Paul is articulating here, their their window had shut and many of them would not be able to, they could not believe anymore. They just couldn't because salvation belongs to the Lord. If the Father's not drawing them, they're not saved. So verse 11, so I asked, did they stumble in order that we, they might fall? By no means, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Because of this, and I don't really know why, I'll be honest, as I read the text, it's very difficult to understand, why couldn't they all be saved and why couldn't Gentiles also? There's a lot of arguments and commentary on this, but in God's plan, this was how it was going to work, and by the way, there's some easy ways to understand this. In order for Isaiah 53 to be fulfilled, they, the Jews, hanging him on a cross, piercing his hands and his feet, they had to reject him. In order for that to happen, and for what Jesus said a few weeks ago in John chapter 12, drawing all men to himself, Isaiah 53 had to happen. So there is some understanding to this. We sit here as Gentiles, a whole group of them, many of you in Christ. This happened in God's provision and in his fulfilled prophecy 
But it's through their trespass and salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous, it says. Interesting. Now, skipping ahead, verse 25 through 28. It says, lest you be wise in your own sight, Gentile. Be careful now. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And as we see this, this is Isaiah 59, continually going back to Isaiah. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Also connecting Isaiah 59, but Zechariah chapter 12 as well. Incredible when we consider this. And then verse 28, as regards to the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake, Gentile. But as regards to election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. The nation of Israel will come back to the Lord. There are Jews today, a remnant, who put their faith in Christ and who will continue to do so. And when we look at this, it's important to look at Jeremiah chapter 31. So turn there with me as well. I'm taking you to a lot of places today, but it's important. Go to Jeremiah chapter 31. And we're going to connect these dots, and I'm going to give you a quote from a Christian Jew of our day. Grew up in a Christian home who lives in Israel, was actually the last mayor of Jericho, which is kind of wild to even think about that. There's still a mayor of Jericho, isn't it? But that's a fact. But as, as he thinks about the text we're going to read and what I just read you in Romans chapter 11, here's what he says about this covenant. This is a new covenant involving us, we Gentiles, but what about those Jews? Has he just rejected them? He hates his own people. We saw in his tears for Jerusalem last week as we looked at that, that's not the case. Verse 35, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day, this is Jeremiah 31, verse 35, and fix the order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that waves roar, the Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs, the creation that he has established, if that departs from before me, declares the Lord, then shall the offspring of Israel cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth below can be explored, they can't, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Is God done with Israel? No. Is he done with every Jew? No. It's just not the case. The window had closed for some, but that is not the case for all. This is important to us. Why? Well, this is Amir Sarfati. He has written a lot of books about eschatology. We'll probably reference him when I get into the book of Revelation here in a few months. But he says this, Romans 11.1, 1, and he also referenced Jeremiah 31 earlier in this quote, should give us great comfort, believer. If God were able to forget his people, then he would be able to forget you and me. <laughs> Isn't that true? But our God is an eternal God who makes eternal promises and establishes eternal relationships. When Christ saved us, it means that we are saved, safe and secure in his arms throughout eternity. John chapter 6, which we'll reference again today, Jesus specifically makes reference to the fact that the ones that the Father has given me, my sheep, the ones that I have called, they have, I have given them eternal life. If he double-crosses Israel, he could double-cross you. That is not our God. We just sang, great is thy faithfulness. Do you believe that? Do you live that way? Do I live that way? Do we walk in a way, in a manner worthy of that calling? We just read Isaiah chapter, or excuse me, Psalm chapter 89. Justin read from that. What do we see? God's faithfulness. We didn't set that up, by the way. God set that up for us so that you could see he keeps his promises. He is a promise keeper. The tough ones, 
and the glorious ones. The difficult and the ones that we look forward to, they're all his promises and he'll do every single thing that he said. Now, it was a, it was a challenge to us by Paul in Romans chapter 11 to not get arrogant. And we see this again from Paul in 1 Corinthians 2. Notice this. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 8. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. This is so much what we heard in our number one. Although it is not wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. He, he talks the, about God's word so oftentimes as being mystery, a mystery, something new. And the gospel certainly was something that we hadn't seen in clear form until the New Testament. It was talked about, pushed to, directed to. Christ is all throughout the Old Testament, so clearly understood in the New Testament and the life of Christ, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. Interesting. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. That's exactly what we see happening here. But look down. This is for you. Look at this. Verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through what? The Spirit. It's not because you attained this wisdom because you're brilliant. Some of you, I'm sure, are brilliant. I'm not. I know that Jesus is Lord and he has saved me because he showed that to me. Because the Holy Spirit revealed that to me. Because the transformation that happened on the inside was supernatural. Because the God that is faithful is always faithful. Because the God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. Then we see this transition as we get into the last few verses. Chapter 12, verse 41, back to John 12. Verse 41 says, Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory and spoke of him. He saw Christ's glory, his glory, Jesus' glory. Well, what is he talking about? Well, remember those two quotes from Isaiah, one from Isaiah 53, the other from Isaiah 6. What John is speaking of is Isaiah 6, so go there. I know I'm taking you a lot of places. Sword drill today. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. If you're still in Jeremiah, which you might be, just go left. Isaiah chapter 6. It says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory, Jesus' glory. He's been speaking of Jesus, and this makes a difference. This makes a big difference. I'll tell you why. It's very easy for the modern Christian, modern maybe even scholar, to begin to separate Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and make them distinct and not one. Now, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you I understand the Trinity full through. I don't. Again, those are lines that are crossing above my head that hopefully throughout eternity I will understand more. But I do know this, they are one. Our God is one. And when we look at the Old Testament, we have some clarity occasionally as to who we're seeing here. And it's very easy for someone to look at Isaiah chapter 6 in this incredible vision and begin to misappropriate who we're looking at. Here's what Isaiah saw. So John is telling us, he's referencing and telling us and defining for us who he saw. He said he saw his glory, Jesus, the one he was speaking of. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. This is Jesus because it was his glory sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And the one he called to another said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Do you notice how many holies that are there? Three. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. 
But who's sitting on the throne? The Lord, Jesus Christ. Why is this important? Notice, the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. It's a terrifying thing to be in the presence of the Lord. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. Some of your translations said, I'm ruined, I'm wrecked. You would be too. For I am a man of unclean lips, lips connected to the heart, as we heard earlier. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, Lips connected to the heart for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, sitting on the throne. Then one of the seraphims flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. He said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. It is a, it is a, a vision of the pain and the suffering that Christ would feel for us. Imagine, I, I think the visual here for all of us, imagine a burning coal touching your mouth. The pain and the suffering that would go on with that. That is not even close to the suffering and the pain that Christ did and went through for you on that cross. Oh, the wonderful, glorious, horrific cross. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And then he said, Here I am. Send me. I'm ready now. The Lord saved me, now I can please him, now I can work for him, now I can serve him, because the Lord saved me, because he did this. But he was broken before him. But what does this mean? It means Jesus was sitting on the throne, not just the Father, not just the, the Holy Spirit. This is Jesus, pre-incarnate, sitting on the throne. Isaiah saw him. Why does that matter? Because who Jesus is, and who, the authority Jesus has given, is articulated by Jesus himself. Notice what Jesus says of himself. Again, putting himself back on that throne. The glories that he left, the glories that he now has, and the glories that he will reign with are a reality and always have been. Notice what he says about himself. John 5, 25 through 27. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And notice this, he has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. He's sitting on the throne. This is, of course, a connection to Daniel 7, which we've covered. The Ancient of Days, handing authority, passing authority. Daniel saw this vision, also preserved in the Dead Sea Scrolls, by the way. Saw this, the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title for himself, given authority to be judge. If you have a vision of Christ, of just being a baby Jesus in the manger, just kindness, mercy, grace, that's all true, of course, and you don't see him as the judge, you don't see him as the standard bearer, you don't see him as the almighty, you don't see him as the consuming fire, you don't tremble before him, you don't have the right vision. And he tells us, you need to look at Scripture. The Scriptures bear witness about me. And this is just a review. I don't want to spend time on this. I've covered this before. Jesus reiterates over and over to his apostles, to the people listening, to the Pharisees, the scriptures that you're holding on to that you believe have life, they are what bear witness about me. They're the ones who show you. Isaiah, Daniel, the law, it all points to me. When you look at Isaiah 6, you're looking at me. When you look at Isaiah 53, you're looking at me. When you look at Isaiah 51, you're looking at me. Psalm 22, you're looking at me. When you look at the temple, you're looking at me. When you look at the Bible, you're looking at Jesus. All of it, the full counsel of God. You see where we're going with this? See how important this is? 
And what does Jesus do with his two disciples on the road to Emmaus? What does he do? Verse 27, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Moses and all the prophets. It's all about him. It always has been. It always will be. And this is another thing we see that is such a a beautiful thing that the Lord loves us so much. Notice what Peter does when he puts all this together. Considering what Christ has said, Peter walking with Jesus step by step for three years. Peter making mistakes along the way and beyond and continued to. But notice what he says about this incredible thing that was given to us, the word of God sitting right in front of you. Here's what Peter says. I'm going to bring it up on the, te- on the screen. Concerning this salvation, the gospel that is found in God's word, Old Testament to New, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. They, they, they couldn't see the exact moments. They couldn't, they couldn't see exactly how it would play out, but they just did what God told them to do. They wrote down what God told them to, to write. They said what God told them to say. You should do the same. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. Speaking of us in this modern church age, both Jew and Gentile believer, in the things that we have now, have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you, the apostles of their time, the preachers of our, the word of God, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Amazing. It's all about Jesus. He's the judge. He's the executioner. He's the jury. And he's the Lord. He's the Lord. But what was their problem? Let's go back to the text, John 12. And it is the problem of man. John 12, 42. We fear the wrong thing. We fear the wrong thing. John 12, 42 says this. I'll bring it up on the screen. You can go back there if you'd like. Nevertheless, many, even the authorities, believed in him. Maybe superficially. It's very difficult to unpack this. I've seen commentaries that take two angles. One, that these were true believers who, just because of cowardice or fear of man, were true believers but didn't live it out immediately. And others said this is just a superficial believer. I'm not going to take a stand on that. I tend to think that he's referencing some of both, to be honest. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogues. We've heard this too many times before, have we not? In our study of John, this is not the first time, is it? We've seen this before. And as we look at some of these examples, you've probably seen it before in your own life too. You've probably seen it, and I have too, where the fear of man got in the way of your fear of the Lord, where you knew this was an opportunity for you that this was an open door, that this was a divine moment that had been preordained by the Lord, that God had put, you, put someone in your path. Maybe you even prayed for it. And because of cowardice, because of laziness, because of fear, you didn't do it, anything. And we've seen this in the life of Christ before. Jesus knew men, and he knew their hearts. People were believing in him because they saw the signs, but he knew who they were. And he didn't entrust himself to him because he knew what was in man, and he knows what's in you, and he knows what's in me. He can see your heart. He sees right through you. He knows you better than you know yourself. And so as we see Jesus, notice this is in John 2. This is early. He knew men. And we see examples of this play out. Notice John 9, not too long ago we covered this. When these parents of this, of this man who was healed, they saw it, they, they noticed it, 
And the man was just convinced that Jesus was incredible. And remember, we built this. I, I kind of built this level where he finally came to a saving faith in Christ. But his parents were still struggling. They saw what happened to their son. They knew better than anyone that this son of theirs was, was lame for decades. And yet, notice verse 20, his parents answered, We know that this is our son, and he was born blind. But how he, knows, he, how, but how he now sees, we don't know. Nor do we know how he opened his eyes Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. They're just passing the buck. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. They believed, maybe. They, they wanted to believe, but their fear of man was overpowering. And they went back. Ask him. He's of age. They went right back to it. They, they were afraid to be put out of the synagogues. Notice what it says. Anyone, the Jews had already agreed, anyone who confessed Jesus would be put out of the synagogue. I want you to think about that. That's what the Jews of that time, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the scribes, the teachers of that time all came together and said, we're going to ostracize these people. You do realize that's happening today too. Anyone who would confess Christ and hold to the truths in God's word, we're going to cancel them. We're going to call them hateful, and we're going to put them off to the side, and we're going to go on the attack. That's our world today too. In schools, in businesses, in culture, in your cul-de-sac, the same thing has been decided by our world too. Anyone who will hold to who Jesus is and his teachings, you're, on, you're, you're going to be on their target list. And that's just the way it has to be for us. And by the way, that's a blessing too. It has been given to you. It's been, it's been given you this grace to be able to suffer for Christ's name. But fear of man versus fear of the Lord. And we've looked at this before. Both Nicodemus struggled with this. He came to Christ in John 3 in the night. And we can assume that that is because he was afraid of his fellow Pharisees. We see this with Joseph of Arimathea. Secretly, for fear of the Jews, he was a disciple of Christ. Were these men true believers? I tend to think. I don't know, though. I do know this. Jesus has a lot to say about this. And we're going to kind of bring this all around in Matthew chapter 10. So I'd like you to turn to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Here's what Jesus has to say about this. So when we look at the fear of man, what can that lead us to? What can that be? And this is very similar, by the way, when we look at Matthew chapter 10 to the text found in Luke chapter 12. But I will say that these are two different events. Sounds very similar, but they are different. What matters about that is if you look at Luke 12 and you look at Matthew 10, where you're turning to right now, is Jesus says it more than one time. And when he says things that are similar more than one time, he is trying to get this through to us. And here's what he says about the fear of man. Verse, he tells us in verse 26, have no fear of them. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. So when you hear in God's word, taught in Sunday school and in church and in your own study, what you hear in your private time with the Lord I want you to say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim in the housetops. And don't fear those who will kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. He clearly is speaking of himself. The one who sits on the throne, the judge that we've already established. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you're of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men... I'll acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Wow, did you catch that? Now, I don't want you to take this the wrong way because 
Some people can take this text and say, oh, I have a chance now to earn salvation. I can prove it to the Lord. I can show him just how loyal I am. That's not what this is talking about. What it is telling you is a true believer will confess the name of Jesus Christ. It is not something that you can do on your own. There are some difficult situations you're going to be in as a believer, and it's going to be tough to confess the name of Christ. I don't deny that. And in and of yourself, you won't be able to do it. But the Holy Spirit has empowered you to do this. And he's going to help you to do this. I don't think it was easy for Stephen, but the Holy Spirit was with him when he gave his life for Christ. I don't think it was easy for Paul, but the Holy Spirit was with him when he gave his life for Christ. I don't think it was easy for Peter, but the Holy Spirit was with him when he gave his life for Christ. This is not earning your salvation. You can't. It's impossible. We're saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not by works, including this, lest any man should boast. But God expects you to do what he calls you to do. Now, this is not the sort of habitual. We have a problem when we go to another ditch here where if you've done this, you are now disqualified from heaven. If that were true, Peter would be disqualified. You know his story. Peter denied Christ three times on the night of his crucifixion. He followed Christ. He was a believer in Christ. Jesus acknowledged that earlier. He says, you've said, well, Peter, but that did, you didn't get that on your own. That came from above when he said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. But what is this? This is a habitual, life-defining. This is the sort of denial that, that really articulates and this really defines and, and encompasses your life. It's what you are. That over and over and over again, you are, through cowardice and fear, neglect and laziness, you're denying his name. Because it's not real for you, and he's not really your Lord, and he doesn't have your heart, and he doesn't know you, and you don't know him. You may, on occasion, make a mistake. I I would guess that if we were all to raise our hands here, when have you been afraid to say the name of Jesus or to proclaim the gospel for some reason? We would all have to confess that's happened, even believers. So I'm not talking about losing your salvation. That's impossible. And I'm not talking about earning it. It's impossible. But the standard that Christ wants you to live by is you don't deny my name. Don't deny my name. Paul came to this conclusion. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation. It's to save those who who are lost. So we see in Luke 12 the same thing. Jesus doubles down on this. This is an important thing to understand. And, and this is what Paul reminds us of in 2 Timothy. He reminds Timothy of this. This is a holy calling. He says this, Therefore don't be ashamed, verse 8, of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Notice, by the power of God. He's going to help you do this. Who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace. Notice how he is qualifying this for us. Don't go into that wrong ditch, but understand you're You're called for this. You're called to say this on the housetops. You're called to proclaim his name. You're called to not be ashamed. You're called to suffer for his name. Notice this grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, which we've already seen. And then to end this, this is a key. And we're going to end here today. We're going to try to challenge ourselves with this. The glory from man versus the glory from God. Here's what John says. The problem for these men, these women who were there, who were believing in Christ but were afraid of men, what did they love? Where was their heart, as we heard in hour one? Where's their heart? They love the glory that comes from man. Let me tell you about the glory that comes from man. It's temporary. It's superficial. 
it's selfish, it's self-seeking. The glory that comes from man, if they get, give you some, they want something in return. Because that's what men do. The glory that comes from man isn't sacrificial. The glory that comes from man can't save. The glory that comes from man isn't pure, isn't righteous, isn't good, and it isn't altogether loving. The glory that comes from man is evil. It's hard to say that, but it's true. It's evil. What do they need? What should they have? They should love the glory that comes from God. And so should you, believer. So should you. Saul had a struggle with this. If you recall his battle with the Amalekites, he thought he did great. He disobeyed the Lord outright, didn't kill all the animals, didn't kill Agag, and notice what he does. He, he sets himself up. It's not in the text. It's earlier in verse 12. He sets a monument for himself in verse 12. And when Samuel gets there and he's encountering him, he said, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and he's given it to a neighbor of yours who's better than you. Speaking of David, imagine hearing that from the Lord. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, Saul says, but notice there's no, there's no repentance. There's no change. He said, yet honor me now before the elders of my people. He still wants honor. He still wants men to praise him. You know what Saul should have said here? I'm broken. I'm sorry. I repent. I turn. I want honor that comes from the Lord. But he still wanted it from the people. Still wanted it from the people. And this is a problem, and it's been a problem for men all along. Notice what Paul says about these Jewish people who are struggling with this. These same Jewish people in John chapter 12. No one is a Jew who is merely one outward, nor is circumcision outward and physical. It's not about following the laws. It's not about pleasing the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, following all the rules. He said this is what a, per, a real Jew is. A, a Jew is one inwardly and circumcised as a matter of the heart. Notice this. Amazing how Paul makes this connection. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. It's not following the rules of man. He's not trying to impress man. He's trying to impress the Almighty. And here's what we says. He, Jesus says in John 5, continuing that same thought we were in John 5 earlier, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? So what do we do? How do we do this? Continuing this on, where does this land? For you and for me, how can you get glory from the Lord? How can you have him be pleased with you. Well, there's one place you have to start. According to Scripture, there is only one place that pleasing the Lord begins, and here's where it begins. Without faith, it's impossible. If you don't love Jesus, if you haven't put faith in his Son, if you don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he died, that he rose again, and he did that for the remission of sins, that he did that because he was pure and perfect and he loved you so much, and that God, but God, being rich in mercy, if you don't believe that, that's where it starts. Repent and believe while that window is open, while he is drawing you, while he is calling you, while that opportunity is there. That is an important element here. It's the most important element that without faith it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Starts with salvation. Starts with salvation. But here's where it ends. It ends for us in judgment. You and I, believer, not just the non-believer, you're in Christ, you're going to face him someday. 
And you're going to face him not to judge you for your sins. As a matter of fact, praise be to God, your sins won't be brought up at all. They'll be as far as the east is from the west. They'll be in the depths of the sea. Your sin that was once crimson red is now white as snow. Praise the Lord. But you will face him with the opportunities that you've had in the time that you've had here on earth. And he is going to look at you, and he's going to look at me, and he is going to see what you have done. We make it our aim to please him, Paul says. It's my aim to please him, for I'm going to have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. But he says, all of us will. Talking to the believer, we all must. And notice what it says at the end of this. Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. We know this is true. We're watchmen on the wall. We proclaim the truth. We shout it from the housetops as we heard Jesus tell us to do earlier in Matthew. But, we are, but what we are is known to God. He knows you. You, can't, you can fool me. I can fool you. I've done it. You've done it. But you can't fool him. And, I, and, and notice it says, you, but we are, are, what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. You start looking at yourself. You start using the Word of God and let it sear into you, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Don't push it off. And this is where we're going to end. And so, from the day we heard, Paul speaking to the church in, Col- in Colossae, and this is early on. He said this twice now at the beginning of Colossians 1, if you read that, verses 1 through 8. He talks about praying for them, and then he says it again. I prayed for you, and what does he pray for? I love how this connects to our number one. I didn't plan that. I didn't even know what he was going to teach on. So from this day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And he, he wants them to do this because this is the only way that this can happen. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Christian, believer here today, we need to look at our own lives. we got to look at our own walk. we got to look at, at what has already happened in the God that we are serving and tremble before him and his word, understanding who he is, that we will sit in front of him, kneel, probably be on our face in front of him. At the judgment seat of Christ, Paul spoke of in 2 Corinthians 5, and he's going to talk about what we've done for him. What have you done for heaven's sake? What have you done for Christ's sake? Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, back to the text, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work. Every good work, keep reading this, you're going to see a bunch of them. You're going to see a lot of conviction. You're going to see a lot of direction. You're going to see a lot of commands. You're going to see a lot of do this, don't do this, put this on, take this off, fill with this, get rid of this as you study the word all every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. That pleases the Lord. That pleases the Lord. Proclaim him up from the housetops. Be bold for him. But when you mess up, get back into the text, get back on board, let him fill you up, push out the old, bring in the new, and please him. Make that your aim. The glory of man is temporal. The glory that comes from the Lord is eternal. Which should you choose? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for the time we've had in your text. We thank you for how convicting it is. We know you are judge. We know you are Savior, though. We know you are our Lord. We know how loving you are. We know that your love is what prompts all of this. We know it's for your glory. And although we don't deserve it, we don't, 
We don't in any way have the ability to earn it. Salvation comes to us because of your grace, and we praise your name for that. We also know that your teaching is very clear that we don't have that opportunity forever. While we may, while we can, I pray that we first, to please you, that we have faith in your Son. I pray for those souls in here who are still resisting, that today is the day of salvation for them. And for us who have believed that our time is short to serve you, to please you, to do things that you want, to do things that you glory in, to do things that bring you glory, and that brings us glory in you. And we thank you for those opportunities. I pray that we make the most of them. In Jesus' name we pray.